going to get started. Thank you for joining us for Trauma Grand Rounds at North Georgia Medical Center today. I guess it's technically morning. This morning, CME CE activity is sponsored by Northeast Georgia Medical Center, um, who is approved as a provider of the nursing continuing professional development by the Northeast Multi-State Division Education Unit, an accredited provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. All individuals associated with this educational session have declared no relationships with a commercial interest organization. There's no conflict of interest attached to this learning activity. And there's no commercial support for this activity. For successful completion, learners must attend the complete activity for CME-CE credit with no partial credit available. Please take time to complete the SurveyMonkey evaluation after the activity. The link will be provided for in-person attendees. And then for those of you watching online, thank you for joining us. The survey will be found um, under the paperclip icon below the video if you're watching the recording. In person, I'll put up a QR code and I will also put the link in the chat box for you all as well. Our speaker today is Dr. Judy McHale, who has over 30 years of progressive trauma nursing experience, including roles as a critical care clinical nurse specialist, trauma program manager, and trauma administrator at Hurley Medical Center in Flint, Michigan. Dr. McHale is the program manager for the Michigan Trauma Quality Improvement Program, which is a surgical quality improvement collaborative of 34 trauma centers in Michigan. And she's the current editor-in-chief of the Journal of Trauma Nursing. She received a BSN from the University of Michigan, an MSN from the University of Texas Science Center, Houston, an MBA from Colorado State University, and a PhD in nursing from the Medical University of South Carolina. Her research interests include trauma disparities and trauma performance improvement. We really appreciate you being here uh, virtually for us today. Thank you so much. I'll turn it over to you. And if you'll go ahead and share your slides. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Um, this is a topic near and dear to my heart. Um, I think it's of huge importance to help all authors learn what goes in a manuscript, what are the sections, um, what's good writing, and how do people get published? What is this publication process that everybody talks about? So a recipe for a high-impact publication is finding a good question, using rigorous methods, and then having a well-written manuscript. Those three, uh, the longer I'm in this business, the longer I realize those are the three key elements over and over and over again. Uh, I think people are challenged to find a good topic. You need to look for where the gaps are in the literature, what hasn't been solved, what's a problem in your trauma center is probably a, a problem for someone else for you to tackle. So think about it that way. JTN has an acceptance rate of about 45%. Um, certainly in the more high impact journals, it's, it's much more difficult. What we evaluate on is the relevance. Is the topic relevant to contemporary trauma care? Is it original? Is the article original, interesting, and innovative? Is it framed in the context of really good, high-quality trauma literature? Do you attempt to add, extend, or challenge what is already known? And credibility, you know, scientific credibility. What is the rigor? You know, what study design did you use? Are the, is the design, the analysis, the conclusion all aligned, reliable, and valid? And then finally, can you write? concisely with clarity, flow, and impact. That's what we're looking for. 
academic writing is is a is different than writing for school or any other endeavor. It's more formal. It should be very unbiased. It should be very clear, very precise, very focused, very well structured, which is what I'm going to cover today. And it should be very well sourced. It's not really about you. I don't really want to hear your opinion too much. I want to know what supports all these things that you're saying. Um, you will get to speak. And when you do speak, when you're writing a professional article, it comes out in the discussion. That's when your voice appears. But before that, it, it's everything else is pretty well structured um, and formulaic. It should be personal. It shouldn't be long-winded. It should not be emotive and grandiose. You should use plain language. A lot of people think you're supposed to use very formal language. To the contrary, every editor I know wishes everybody would stop writing in these long-winded sentences and just say something very straightforward um, in a very plain language manner. So what structure am I harping about? It's called IMRAD. It's been around for a long time. You can Google IMRAD. You can Google articles on how to write professionally. You can go to PubMed and put in, how do I write an article? And up will come 7,000 articles written by other editors trying to tell everybody how to write an article. And they're all good. So there's no excuse. You can figure this out. What we want to see is that you put everything in the introduction, which in JTN is called the background but it's the same thing as the introduction. That's the why. Why do I care? Why are you doing this? The methods is how, what did you do? The results are, what did you find? And the discussion is, so what? Out of all of these, the one I fear the most is the discussion. So what? If you've written a whole article that ends up with such a little so what, it's like, why did you do it to begin with? Which means you picked the wrong question. So be very careful with this but you should be able to really define these out, the why, the how, the what, and the so what. This graphic I'm gonna use throughout my presentation, I want you to study the proportions. When you start your background section, you start extremely broad, and then you slightly narrow it as you progress down towards whatever your objective is. So the introduction might be, trauma is really, really bad. Trauma kills a lot of people. The statistics of mortality for trauma are this, that, and the other thing. Oh my God, trauma is terrible. And then you start to narrow it. Oh, but grandma in the ICU, she really does bad in trauma. You're narrowing it down. Then you finally get to your objective. The methods are a big fat chunk. They're just a big section on what you did. It's extremely straightforward, non-dramatic, a statement of the facts of what you did. You have to provide the reader with enough information that they can replicate your study, but you don't want to overburden them with too much description. So you have to be careful with methods. The results are just as it sounds, the results, they can usually be said pretty straightforward in a, in a, a smaller paragraph. And then the finally, the discussion is really where it opens up again. You start out with what you find, you discuss and compare your article to the rest of the literature and then you go into limitations. So you can see the discussion is much more broad. This is again, where your voice really finally comes out. And then finally, there's a conclusion that's relatively uh, small and short. So the rules are written, you know, some people think that, oh, editors have this big, you know, cabal behind the scenes where we do stuff and nobody really knows what they want. I, I would say both of that. Uh, the rules have been written um, IMRAD format is what editors want. Uh, and as I said, there's a thousand articles out there. There's YouTube videos, there's everything. 
And then each journal has their author instructions or what I call the author guidelines. And this is where I spell out exactly how I want it. So it's, you got enough information here that there should be no surprise of what we wanna see in what section. I thought this was cute. This was published in the Pakistani Journal of uh, Pakistan Journal of Medical Sciences. Authors' failure to read and follow instructions leads to increased trauma to their manuscripts. I will tell you the number one complaint of all editors. I'm on many, many editor listservs. I belong to at least five editorial uh, professional organizations, and basically everybody has the same complaint that no one reads the journal uh, instructions and follows them. So we spend half of our time telling you stuff that we've already told you. Where can you find these miraculous author guidelines I'm babbling about? Well, you can see on any journal, here's the journal of trauma. You go to authors, you look for information for authors and it's there. And in, this is the same in any journal, anywhere. Go for the section for authors and look for information for authors. Download them, read them, study them, and make sure your manuscript conforms to them. The most read sentences of any article are thought to be the title, maybe the abstract, and then finally the abstract conclusion. For people who read a lot, who are in the literature, I call it being in the stacks. It's like I'm in PubMed constantly looking at things, studying articles. Um, and it's really important for people who are really speed reading and don't even want to take the time to read the abstract. Some people just look at the title and then they go straight to the sentence in the abstract of the conclusion. So you have to be really careful and very impactful and think about what it is you're trying to do um, and make sure that these sentences count. Elements of a good title is that it's concise and descriptive. I like a uh, short uh, article titles, and that's clearly stated in the journal guidelines. Under 13 major words, major being defined as greater than three letter words. You want to place your main topic early. There's research to suggest that search engine optimization is is more uh, is is helped if you place your main topic early. Don't bury it towards the end of your of your title. Use keywords, don't use abbreviations, no jargon, do not state as a question. These are found uh, to be off-putting to a lot of people and they're not helpful, so I stay away from those. Um, the literature also shows that if you reveal your findings in the title, which some titles do, some journals do that, that a lot of uh, readers don't go on to read the article because they feel like they already know what happened so they don't want to bother to read it. So. Um, in JTN, we don't do that. Um, don't go for cutesy stuff. I think that's a major turnoff. And don't include your country or your trauma center level in the title, unless it's specific to what you're studying. That's just grandiosity. It's stupid. So don't do it. Example of a poor title, a novel method of optimizing patient and family centered care in the ICU. This was published in Journal of Trauma Acute Care Surgery in 2017. I don't know what this study is about. If I'm looking at it, I, I have no idea. Now you've forced me to either pass it by or give up. What is it about? Well, their article is actually about family participation in rounds. Is rounds in the title? No. Family participation, maybe you could pick it up from family centered, but this is a poor title, poorly done. You want it to be descriptive. So if I'm, if I'm pulling articles on family participation in rounds, I won't find your article. You've just made it that much more difficult. Manuscript sections. 
First of all, the abstract is critically important. It must stand alone in explaining your study. If your whole rest of your study got burned up to a crisp and the only thing I have left is the abstract, I still should be able to pretty succinctly understand what you did. The reason why it's now considered imperative that it have enough detail to stand alone is that in, in very poor, under-resourced countries, they often can only get uh, access to the abstract. And there's examples in the literature where physicians in another country actually tried to implement some study based on the abstract alone, and they didn't understand all the things, and they, they there were abbreviations in the abstract that they didn't understand, and they actually ended up actually harming patients. So you have to think about this from a global perspective. Maybe somebody in an under-resourced country somewhere will be reading your abstract someday and that's the only thing they can see. It, it is often the only thing that gets read. It should be very informationally dense, no abbreviations, no citations, use structured headings and limit to 250 words, no easy task. So the structured headings for JTN are background, objective, methods, results, conclusion, and keywords. The background should have the problem, the significance, the gap, and possibly the proposed intervention. And this should be two to three sentences, something like it, you know, X is really bad and X mortality is very high, but we don't know yet about X's whatever. And a problem, so a proposed solution may be something X. That would be what we're looking for. The common error in the background is that some people just get carried away and they put way too much about the problem. And then they don't even say what the gap is. If you don't have a gap, you've already lost me as an editor. I need to know what it is. What are you tackling that's not already in the literature? The objective should be one sentence. It should start with this study aims to, or the purpose of this study is, it should be one sentence. It should be very, very clear. Methods should have the study design and key study elements. It's usually about three or four sentences to be able to grasp your uh, methodology. Most often people leave stuff out and I'm constantly telling you, you forgot to put this, you forgot to put this, so incomplete. Results should start out in, in three things. One, total number of participants. Next, group demographics, N equals X, N percent. Uh, and then maybe mean, standard deviation, median, IQR. And then your key findings should be your, your point estimate with your confidence interval and a p-value. The reason why we are sticklers about always starting with the total number of participants is that sample size continues to be a problem in publishing. A lot of, a lot of uh, articles are coming in with this way too small of sample size. So the very first thing you gotta do is state it up front. The conclusions are the key findings, State your key finding here. It's the most important sentence. Make it impactful. Get right to the point and state it. And then finally, keywords, five to seven keywords used to uh, search for your topic. I want to stress again the importance of the method section of the abstract. It should be extremely informationally dense. It should really be one to two to three sentences at max. And it should include all the elements of what I call the D picots, picots. If you're a PICO person and you know this from school, so you want the study design, you wanna say the population, that's the P. The I is the intervention, your initiative, your program. The C is any comparisons, if applicable to your study. Outcomes is the O, T is timing, 
with the dates of the data collection. S is setting and another S would be statistics. We don't have to do statistics all the time. It's optional. It's only if you need it, if it's very, very unusual. I'm a fan of the first big run-on sentence in the methods section. And you'll notice this in the really high impact journals. They're very succinct, they pack it all in. So look at that sentence, it's a long run-on sentence. This is a study, single center pre and post intervention study on an integrated electronic health record screening brief intervention referral to treatment tool for alcohol drug use compliance in adolescent trauma performed at a level one pediatric trauma center in the southeastern U.S. from January of 21 to May of 23. So you can see it hit all elements of the, the PICO as well as the study design at the beginning. The study design should always be the first sentence of your methods in both the abstract and the uh, main text. It's kind of like if you were standing giving, uh, standing on rounds and you didn't start out with, this is a 45-year-old male, unrestrained driver, ejected from a rollover you know, vehicle, going 70 miles per hour, et cetera. It, can you imagine doing rounds and not starting with that sentence? Well, it's the same thing for an editor reading an article. If you don't start out with a study design, I'm already turned off. It sets the stage for me to have an expectation of what I will see. So you really uh, need to do that as a routine. So the uh, introduction, again, um, solid. Um, the objective comes after that, and it should be very, very clear. Um, let's get into the main text. So I'm talking about the main text now. The background. You want to hook the reader's interest. You want to prepare the reader to understand the paper. You want to state the problem and its significance. What is currently already known? include select references. You do not do an entire uh, lit review here. You pull out the best select references that make your point and you include them. What remains unknown? That's the gap. So we know all this about this topic, but nothing's yet been done on this. And what is your proposed solution? In the main text of the article, this should be nothing more than three paragraphs, maybe four. I wanna see it under one and a half pages. Don't kill me off. I'm telling you, I get articles where the background is literally five, six pages long. We haven't even started this, the study yet and I'm on page you know, 12, it's, it's awful. So I'm, I'm saying to you, this should be very succinct, very structured, uh, set it up and you have to, you have to tell me what the gap is. If you can't tell me the gap, then you don't even know why you're writing the article. Here's a schematic on the three paragraphs of an effective introduction. You set the stage by giving context to the reader to care about the subject. You're bringing me up to speed on why this topic is so important, that it kills a lot of people, that it has a long length of stay, that it's, you know, mortality rate is terrible, that terrible things are happening. But then you also have to move to the middle and give me the create a knowledge gap. You know, get me curious about what do we not yet know? And then tell me what you're gonna do with your study. This comes directly from Ibrahim and Demick's um, article called Writing for Impact, How to Prepare a Journal Article, which I strongly encourage you to write. These are surgeons at the University of Michigan where I work. 
um, and they they just have a beautiful writing style. I attend every writing workshop I possibly can at the University of Michigan, and it's the same over and over again. It's just really good stuff. Um, I encourage you to go to this website, surgeryredesign.com. The article is there as a PDF. Uh, it's for free. The gap statement. So why was the study even needed? The gap focuses the reader's attention on areas that are not previously yet explored. Needed but unknown information, the unsolved problems, the knowledge gaps, the limitations of prior studies. It might be that no one has yet studied this, this topic in a new population. Maybe they haven't extended it. Now you have a better database um, with more rich complications. Uh, maybe you're extending a previous study to a larger sample size, or maybe uh, you're extending it to a superior research design. Often the gap statement is signaled by the words yet, but, and however. So they're easy to spot. And I encourage you as you start reading really good quality literature, you'll always find the gap that you should really make it obvious to the reader what the gap is and why this study was even needed. Example gap statements are, yet limited research has been conducted on, yet studies have focused only on adult with non in pediatrics. But despite extensive research in this field, little is known about, yet previous studies were limited to single center studies. However, there's a lack of evidence regarding yet no studies, yada, 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 you can see where this is going. So these statements set you up to tell me, okay, I see this author, has read the literature, already knows what's been published, and has found a crack, a glimmer here of something new to look at. And they're taking me on this journey and I'm ready to go on it with them. So hit the reader over the head with your gap statement. Now, in the main text of the body of the article, JTN also has another heading called the objective. Now we already had an objective listed in the abstract, but because there's so much, um, because so many readers are so, I'm sorry, so many writers do not write clearly, I forced another objective to be in the main text. This objective should be the same as the one that was already in the abstract. And it's very, very important. An objective, again, should align to PICO the population, the intervention, a comparator, if applicable, outcome and time frame. It should be one sentence only. It should be very simple. It's usually uh, terms like aim, objective, purpose. These terms are all used interchangeably. If you wanna say the purpose of your study is, or the objective is, or the study aims to, this is fine. I would, I would stay away from hypothesis or long-winded three-aim research questions. That's what you use when you're writing a proposal or a grant, not in publication. In publication, we just want it straightforward and simple. Don't try to sound highfalutin. Don't tell me your big fancy hypothesis. Use plain language. Out of all the wording, I like the first one first, this study aims to. It uses the fewest number of words to get me to where you're going. And number one, it should be one sentence outlining your specific goal. There is a specific format to an objective that I don't think a lot of writers or readers maybe understand. And that is we wanna see the verb first, then the intervention, 
And then you can tell me outcome and or population in whichever order you want. So you're going to use a verb like assess, analyze, compare, describe, determine, evaluate, examine. There's a zillion of these, but you always start out with this study aims to verb. On an intervention, in a population, an outcome. So make sure you follow this format. So examples, to evaluate, that's the verb, to the effect of an EMR computerized screening tool, that's the intervention, on substance abuse screening compliance, that's the outcome in pediatric trauma population. The second one, to assess the effectiveness of a delirium prevention protocol comprised of simulation, microlearning, mobile phone screening application, that's the whole intervention, on pain, functional status, sleep quality, and delirium, that's the outcome in older patients in hip fractures. So that second one is quite the mouthful. And I'm kind of not, uh, I, I prefer simplified objectives. That whole second one really fits beautifully in your method section. So I would probably simplify it as shown below to assess the verb, the impact of a multi-component delirium prevention protocol on clinical outcomes. Just use generalized statements. I hope that's clear. Um, those are two ways of doing it. Now we're gonna move on to the methods. So the methods section includes the elements again, repeating myself, study design first, followed by elements of the PICO with timing and setting and statistics only if unusual. I would say most people are getting away from including statistics in their methods section. Um, if, if, I mean, people state, I'm sorry, there is a paragraph in the um, method section that is statistics, but really the body of it, uh, real depth of going into it is if, if it's unusual. So let's look at this. In the methods, use the subheadings to group material logically. So I'm a big uh, believer in subheadings. I really think they help guide the reader's eye. And if you group material logically, you can, you can come up with your own subheadings. I'm suggesting these are popular ones to consider using. Most articles have a study design where they group. We prefer that you group the statement of what the study design is. This is where you should place your IRB statement and, and whether you uh, followed a reporting guideline. So all that can be, it's a brief paragraph, it's not very long, but you get all that out of the way and tuck it in right there. Next. Heading is population and setting. Admissions to an urban academic Midwest level one trauma center from yada, yada, yada. So you, you got the population, you know, you're putting in here the setting and you're including the dates. Um, you want to talk about uh, data. You might have a, a long paragraph on how you collected your data. You might have another paragraph on what instruments you used. If you have more than one instrument, then we really like you to have one paragraph per instrument um, listed where you describe the instrument, you give us the reliability and the validity of the instrument, you provide all the references to the original uh, work that was done when it was developed. And then finally, you should have a paragraph dedicated just to whatever your intervention was. And it may be many paragraphs, depending on how complex your study is. I also would encourage you to consider including a figure that shows the intervention steps, especially if you have a, a rather convoluted study. I think it really helps readers understand what you're doing. 
And then finally, there should be a statistical analysis paragraph. The results section. Results come straight off of data. So you either have tables that you've already figured out and you have figures stating numbers. This is where you start to tell me what was in those figures. So the results are you start describing information that comes out of table one, table two, figure one, figure two. There should be roughly a paragraph per each table for each figure, depending on the complexity. If you have really intricate work, then you'll have more than that. But your results flow from what I'm saying is that the results section flows from tables and figures. Do not embed or state where tables go. Uh, this is the journal's prerogative to figure that out. You just put a call out to see table five. You don't state where it goes. That's a common mistake. The results should be in a classic order. They always start with the total number of participants. Always, always, always. Again, remember what I said to you about sample size is a real problem with studies. So you want to get that up there front and center, state what it is. Next, you move to the key demographics, then the key results. So the box in blue, typically the first line is a total of N equals 241 patients met inclusion criteria of which most were male, white, and Hispanic. And you can see N percent, N percent, N percent. You always want to make clear to the reader Whenever you're stating the percentage, you always want to make clear the numerator and the denominator, make that clear to the reader when they're reading the sentence. Screening compliance increased from pre-intervention to post-intervention. So that's the key result of this particular study. You want to describe your key outcomes. You list the outcomes in the same order throughout the manuscript. This is a common mistake where people start getting things out of order. Everything you say has to be in the exact same order. If you mentioned you have three different outcomes you're going to talk about in this study, and you mention them in the methods section in this order, then that's how they should be in the results section. Um, you also, as I said, list everything in order of the numeric tables and figures. So you don't start talking about the data in table two before you've talked about the data in table one. Everything must be in order. And as I said, typically one paragraph is dedicated to each table or figure. So you can see results is pretty small in terms of size. And again, it's really about, you, you need to pair it back to me, the key points from tables. A lot of people think that when you write an article, the first thing you should do when you write is prepare your tables, get your data. You can't do any, I mean, you could write methods 20 years ago because you already knew what the study, what you did. So the methods can be done early, but in terms of starting to really write your article, get your data, um, and then your results flow from your data. So we're talking about classic results, um, you know, putting them in this order. I, I can't stress enough that you have to say the total number of participants first, key demographics second, and key results third. A lot of people get confused about data and results. And I'm learning to grow to this and be a better editor. When you look at results, um, data and results aren't the same thing. Data are the numbers. Results are statements that kind of explain what the data show. Most authors just repeat the data, but they don't really offer results. So in your journey to be a better author, think about it. On the left here, you can see, now 
this is not bad. And, and I get a lot of this in the journal. Three variables were independently associated with graft or function. You know, you can see the odds ratio, the confidence intervals, and the p-values. And they go on to state all of them. On the right-hand side, though, they just summarized all of that and just said multivariate analysis showed that only recipients' height, number of HLA matches, and cold ischemia time were independently associated with delayed graft function. See table three. So it kind of cuts through the crap, helps the reader comprehend what in the hell are you talking about, and makes it easier. Here's another example. The original, uh, I'm sorry, the mean standard deviation recipient wait time was 1.8 for transplant recipient versus 4.1 for historical controls. Now you're interpreting it a bit. Transplant recipients waited less than half as long as historical controls. You know, you're giving me the same information, but you put it in and you made sense of it to the reader. So this is a, something for us all to aspire to doing a better job of when you take your results, putting them in sentences that make sense. I really applaud, I love Thomas Ansley. He's a, he's a, a, a guy who teaches at University of Michigan and I go to all of his lectures. He's an editor of Clinical Chemistry and he's been around a long time. He's published some wonderful stuff on how to be a better writer. And he was showing this example one day in class and I stole it. Here's this table on the left. It's beautiful. It's nice. Um, but on the right, he describes it as neuroximab showed the highest survival rates throughout the entire study. So he summarized that first line of data. Six months after diagnosis, the survival rates for neuroximab and blisteride were more than double that of the radiation treatment group, p-value point whatever. But at 12 months, patient survival in the neuroximab group became significantly higher than the blisteride group, achieving 6.4 times higher survival. So, you know, wow, he took this, this is what's in his results describing what's in this table. He just makes it so real. Um, that's what you really want to strive to. There's just throwing numbers back at the reader and then trying to put them in some kind of comprehensive sense and order. That's what you should strive to do. Now, the discussion. Look at the discussion. It starts out kind of narrow, and boy, then it goes broad. The discussion is you saying, You've, you've, you've taken everybody on this long journey. I've been reading through your article. I'm through methods. I got through the results. I'm on page whatever, 15. And now what you want to do is do a level set again at the beginning of the discussion. So we often like to say this start out with something like we found our study demonstrates. And this is where you recap the study in plain language, say, Yes, I was trying to do a study on, you know, integrating, you know, SBIRT into the EMR. Put it in plain language and say what you found. Put it in plain, simple language. Do not overstate your findings. Don't say you solved world hunger. You didn't. Um, do not state statistically significant 3,000 times. Uh, editors are allergic to that. Do not, do not state that uh, frequently at all, um, de-emphasize it. Compare your results to previous studies. That's what we wanna see. We wanna see how your results, do they refute, contrast, validate previous work? So I expect you to have a pile of articles on your same topic 
And you need to sit there and go, this author's study supports what I just found. This one is in direct contrast. Um, and then you're going to put those in paragraphs and you're going to explain to me what your data shows compared to everybody else's. And then try to explain why you think your stuff is different. And then finally, you will discuss the practical implications of your work. So the discussion section, this is really where your voice comes in. This is where you have a chance to actually talk like a human being and say what you really think. Um, in the other sections, it's not. It's very formulaic, very structured. I should not really hear any of your own opinion in anything until you get to the discussion. Then finally, you need to be uh, very mindful of having a limitation section. Not all journals have a limitations subheading, but I do. I think it's such an important thing that you, you have to have its own heading. So there should be a heading called limitations. And this is where I want you to be extremely self-critical. Think of uh, running a good PI program. Think about a bad case. You had a bad outcome case in your trauma center and you're doing PI minutes. Be self-critical. It's the exact same thing as an article. I expect you to lay out everything, list all your limitations and any efforts that you tried to do to mitigate those lim limitations. Use standard limitation language associated with your study design. So you should know about selection bias. If you're, if you're doing an observational study, which I assume most of us in trauma do, because we can't really randomize too many trauma patients, uh, you're going to have, you're open to selection bias. So you should always address that. Uh, temporal bias, test retest bias, measurement bias, low generalizability. If you don't uh, know about these biases relative to your study design, then you need to bone up on that because I think that's something every editor expects to see. And you should be using this language. So we've mastered to go through the entire uh, format. In conclusion, the conclusion is the scariest one. I don't, I have been reading your article for the last, you know, whatever it took me time. I don't want you to tell me everything all over again. And so many people start in and then they start getting all redundant. I don't expect a long thing. I just want a single brief paragraph. Briefly restate your key results. End it. Get out of Dodge. So less is more. Offer suggestions for future research and end it. That's all you have to do. Very simple. Very sweet. Let's quickly move into tables and figures. On the APA website, up at the top, I encourage you to make sure you go to this APA website. It's a great website. Has all kinds of example tables, how to set them up, um, many examples to look at. No excuses, you should be able to do APA formatting. Here's the classic table one. APA uses a very clean, they like a lot of white space. There's no box, there's no internal lines. Notice there's a line under the title. There's just two, two lines at the top and then one line at the bottom. There's always a note underneath each table and that is where you put your definitions. Never use abbreviations without defining them underneath. Or if you have anything with a subscript like this one does, you define it underneath. Here's another example. In this example, in this example, first, the first one, going back one, notice that the N percents are all lined up because you're using the same statistic. That's a clean way to do your statistics. 
Here's an example where they did N percent in one column and the very few data points they had that they were uh, reporting as mean standard deviation, they put over here in a second column. That's fine. That's clear. I can easily see and understand what the readers, what the writer is doing. That's a good way. Another way is to list on the left-hand side down the demographic column, you put what it is you're, you're writing. So the first one, the age is uh, reported as mean standard deviation in years, whereas injury severity score is reported as a median IQR. Always define what the data is in the tables. Don't make the reader try to guess what it is that you're writing about. Is it mean? Is it median? Is it N percent? What are you reporting? Always make it clear. Notice the columns on the right. They should be right aligned so that it's easy for the eye to travel down the column. Make sure that those are right aligned. Whereas the demographic characteristics column on the left is left aligned. Here's an example of just of a t-test. Again, look at the clean, clean lines of the table. There's not a lot of, there's no box, no internal lines. Same thing again for an ANOVA. So those are examples. Let's look at uh, graphs, a figure. Again, a lot of white space. Everything should be easy to read big enough font that I can understand the legends on either side. If you are using color, be aware that color does not show up in the print version of the journal. It will show up on the, on the electronic versions. Here's a nice figure line graph. You want to have the box with the number the colors very close to where you are showing your, your figures lines. Don't make my eye travel a long distance away. It makes it too difficult to interpret. I want to also show you that uh, I mentioned earlier that when you're you're writing, especially in quality improvement articles, uh, you have a complex article. It's often helpful when you're describing your intervention to have a figure that kind of lays it out and explains what steps you're using what for. It's just a great way to help a reader understand what you did when you did it. These are all just examples. Don't be afraid to use figures. I think they're very effective ways to communicate complex information. In terms of now moving to writing, oops, sorry, that one slipped in the wrong way. That's another example of a figure. Let's get into writing now. Write with the reader in mind. The burden of clarity rests with the writer, not the reader. If you've lost me and I'm confused, it's not my fault. It's your fault. The Probably the number one mistake right here on this slide is that you are not letting other people read your work before you submit it. Why would you submit something to me, a grumpy editor, with a bunch of grumpy peer reviewers all over the country, and you didn't bother to ask your janitor to read your article, your spouse to read your article, you know, the ward clerk to read your article. Everybody should have read your article and said, this doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know what you're saying. Uh, that's a key mistake. Check your ego at the door. Ask for somebody who will give you a critical feedback. Don't go to somebody who will only be nice to you. Ask them to rip it apart. Less is more. If you think you've written uh, 14 pages worth of good stuff, I say you can get it down to three, 13 pages. You should be able to cut, cut, and cut. Avoid jargon. I don't know what a support vector machine approach is. Makes no sense to me. Avoid overwriting. This is a word style 
a writing style that's characterized by excessive detail, needless repetition, convoluted sentence structures, overwrought figures of speech, like it's of critical importance. It's essential for trauma centers. And I'm gonna call out my own discipline. Nursing has a problem. Nursing resides on the left-hand side of the screen. It's not our fault. We were taught to do this, faculty do this. It's a problem within nursing. I'm asking you to not do this. I'm asking you to use plain language, get to the point, use as fewest words as possible. The simplest word to say the same thing. Why say utilization when you can just say use? Stuff like that, it's pompous, it's stupid, don't do it. Cut, 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 and then cut some more. Use consistent terminology, this is really important. Whatever it is you're describing, say it the same way, all the way through the manuscript. So here's an example from a recent article that I looked at. They, they, they had a thing they were calling mobile technology communication platforms, then mobile device application platform. Then it was called a communication platform. Then it was called a mobile device application. You can see all the words. I was so confused by the time, you know, I just said, you gotta pick one thing, make sense of it, define it early in the article and then stay with it. Avoid using introductory clauses. According to, it has been appreciated that, it is well known that scholars emphasize that. Various authors have stated, you don't need this. Just state the obvious, make a declarative statement followed by a citation. You guys, a citation to me is gold. You're saying that I read this article, they supported this, this statement, came out of this article, you paraphrased it in your own words and you're citing it. I don't need all this other stuff up front. Avoid abbreviations and acronyms. Editors absolutely abhor these. Why? Because they're a burden to readers. Now you can use them sparingly and only if common knowledge, like in, in the trauma reader knows length of stay, mechanism of injury, ISS, stuff like that. That's fine, that's not gonna kill anybody or don't use them at all. But these sentences that are found in, in articles, I'm constantly batting down, like performance of the TN on the TSS and the identification of missed injuries is similar to that of the TSMO. You know, this is just not the way to write. Um, and look at the last one, presence of STS, BO and CF in other TRP, whatever, I, I've given up. You, you know, I'm, when I see these, what I'm doing constantly as a reader is I have to turn back to the beginning of the article again to remember what did TSMO mean again, what? You're just burdening the readers and it's unnecessary. Active versus passive writing. You know, passive writing is when you put the object, then the verb, then the subject. Surveys were completed by students. They're kind of nasty. I really like active voice where you go subject, verb, object, who did what. Students completed surveys. It's much more precise, it's less wordy, it energizes your writing. The subject is doing something. Um, beware of it, that examples, that's inflated prose. It is thought that, it is clear that, it is worth pointing out that. So it, that, stay away from that. That's kind of a uh, wordy. The dangling modifier, whether you slept through English class in your sixth grade English class, you probably learned what a dangling modifier is. Here's an example on the left. What I call it is a wordy introduction. Anytime I see somebody explaining something up front, to, to assess the success of the intervention, the primary outcome was, 
I already know that that's, that should be gone. I just want to hear the primary intervention outcome was the frequency of discharge. Don't explain stuff. If you find yourself explaining something, you're in trouble. This is extra wordy. Citations etiquette. Limit the number of citations to three or less to support a point. I see this in a lot of students' work. Um, you're used to writing for uh, academician for your faculty or for your professor. You might list 25 citations. <laughs> you're trying to show to your, your, you know, your faculty that you've read all these articles. But in publishing, we don't care. We just want you to give us some articles to read that support your, your uh, statements, but don't slay, slay us with a hundred of them. Cite the most current high quality peer reviewed literature. I like to think of citations as breadcrumbs. You're moving fast, you're trying to move along, especially in the background section, you're setting up your problem, you're telling me what's currently known about a problem, but you don't have time to lay out every detail. You're leaving these citations for me, the interested reader to go back. I look at people's citations all the time, all the time. I'm looking to see what you said, this person is saying this. I pull that article up to see, are they really saying that? Um, don't be sloppy with this. Make sure your citation matches what you're really saying and only use the best high quality peer reviewed literature. Don't, don't give me crap from websites and books and magazines. I want pure primary sources, which means articles. I want research articles. So here's an example of somebody who screwed up recently. They wrote, according to the National Center on Addiction Substance Abuse at Columbia University, teen substance use and addiction is the number one problem. This was written and they reference Garofoli. So I go open up Garofoli. Well, he didn't say that. He cited, he cited the original reference, the primary source. But the secondary person's moving too fast and the nurse put down that Garofoli said this, and that's wrong. I see this a lot. You should be writing, you should be citing the primary source only. There's a format for how you do citations. If you put them at the beginning of a sentence, that's called a narrative citation. Example, let's say Luna and colleagues 2020 stated that trauma kills everybody. That's you starting it at the beginning of a sentence. A parenthetical citation is when you list it in the middle of a sentence or at the end of a sentence, which is the most common, and this is the most preferred. It's easier. The red one is the one I like. I think most most uh, editors like this because it just it's very succinct. Um, if you're writing about an organization, look at the big one. When you're writing out about a group, like if you're going to reference the American Trauma Society. Make sure the first time you do it, that you put ATS in parentheses. And then the next time you, you reference um, them, you can just put ATS. You don't have to write out American Trauma Society 5,000 times. So make sure that you understand that. This is a common mistake here. This author put in um, that the this reference, they listed uh, what five authors and what they should have done is listed it as the first author only in the year. So again, it makes it very wordy when you start getting a thousand different authors names. It should have just been one author with the year. So not paying attention to APA format can be painful. Paragraphs, you wanna break your writing up into manageable units, 
makes your writing easier to read and comprehend, to tell a story, one idea per paragraph. Tip, I ask you before you submit your article, zoom, zoom out so that you can zoom in, zoom out so that you can see several pages um, and look at the size of your paragraph so you can see where you've got some really long ones that you didn't realize were there and go in and make sure that they're more normal. Continuity, write with a consistent point of view. You know, within a paragraph, keep to the topic to two or more sentences of the same, um, always using the same subject and object in the sentence in the same order. Now, moving on to publication process with the last couple of minutes we have, I want you to understand that when you submit, it comes directly to me, the editor. I give it a quick overview, and then I decide whether to send it out for peer review, accept it outright, or I do a desk reject. After that, it goes, if it went to peer review, when I get all the peer reviews back in, um, then I do another second review of it. This is quite in-depth, takes me a lot of time. And then I make a decision whether to invite you to re revise. I either reject it or we accept it and move on to publication. That's the steps of the manuscript journey. This first uh, cut right here, this first review, is what I call the technical check, and many journals have that. The editor, all they're doing is, you know, do, do you write an article that matches journal aims? I just can't tell you the number of articles I get on tuberculosis and CHF. There's not a trauma patient insight. It's amazing what people will submit to journals. It's like spaghetti on a wall. Um, did you have IRB, if it's a research or QI article? Um, I put it through a plagiarism checker. Um, and this is using AI to do, just you know pick up whether you've lifted sentences verbatim out of other articles. So be careful not to do that. If it's really high plagiarism, you'll get rejected out of hand. APA format would be nice. I won't reject somebody because they didn't submit an APA format. I like it in APA format. So if you want to make me feel good, do it. But I won't kill it outright. Um, I'll ask you to switch it to APA format later if if it's a good article is it appropriate length and did you mask your original um site so what setting what hospital you're from your name all that should be done before i can send it for peer review if any of this is in question i send it back to the author to correct before i move forward double blind review is when which is what the jtn uses is all the people all my I have 300 peer reviewers around the country, around the world, I should say. I have several in other countries. Um, they don't know where you're from and they don't know who you are and vice versa. So nobody knows anybody. This is as, as clean as we can make it. Um, when I'm selecting your article, I try to match a reviewer with credentials that fit and in research interests that fit your article. So if I have an author who's written a lot on pain and they're a peer reviewer and you're submitting a pain uh, article, then likely I will ask them. If it's a QI article performed at a trauma center, then I make sure that I have trauma program managers reviewing the article, not faculty from a university who have never worked in, worked in a trauma center in their life. So we really try to fit. We have reviewers more than just uh, clinicians. We have social workers. We have statisticians, we have psychologists, we have pharmacists, um, we have anesthesiologists, we have CRNAs, we have everybody. So we really try to have a good bevy of people interested to match uh, the article.
facing rejection is something that happens to all of us. You want to, um, I just I love this because this is a surgeon at the University of Michigan who showed this. And I love this. Uh, he got rejected from New England Journal of Medicine. You can see the rejection notice here. I am sorry to inform you your submission has not been accepted. It was evaluated by members of yada, 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 yada. But notice his response. He emailed this to somebody who was working with him on the article. And he, and he wrote, you know, thoughtful reviewers, I'll bring up to our next meeting to plan revisions before sending elsewhere. You know, that's what you have to have. You have to have a growth mindset. It might not be good enough for this journal, but plenty, there's plenty of journals out there. So uh, yeah, you can get mad. Yeah, you can throw it on the floor and say, we're all a bunch of idiots. We didn't understand what you were saying. It's all our fault. That's fine. Throw it in a drawer, slam it shut, walk away. You know, come back two weeks later, ready to open it up and, and you know, be open for, be self-critical and say, yeah, I could do better. What are we looking at? Again, this is the classic grading criteria most journals use. Is it, is it relevant? Is it original? Did you frame it with adequate current literature? What did your study add? You know, is everything credible, aligned, valid, and reliable? And did you write with clarity and impact? What do I look at? If it's a good topic, it's good science with good writing, that's an easy, clear cut. That's, a, that's an accept. If your topic sucks, it's just not relevant to current trauma, uh, people in trauma centers, then I'm not sure anything can save it. The best quality science with the best writing. I get this a lot, uh, interestingly enough, a lot from um, international uh, authors who really don't work in trauma centers and don't really understand what is important to a trauma clinician. Um, it's a mismatch for the journal, and it's not an important enough topic to write 25 pages about, even though you did it perfectly. So that'll get rejected. If the topic's great, it's cool. Wow, it's great. It's wonderful. It's current. It's interesting. But the science is terrible. The design is terrible. You don't have enough sample size. It's just poor quality. And you wrote beautifully. It, it can't get in. That's just not acceptable. If you got a good topic, and you had good science, but your writing is kind of weak. This is where you're on the bubble. And now you're at the mercy of Judy McHale and how much I'm dealing with at the moment. Um, it's dependent on the number of current submissions and whether I have the bandwidth to save your writing. Am I up for what I call a six review? It's gonna be six revisions for me to get this article in shape. And do I have the bandwidth to do that with everything I'm dealing with? So you don't want to be in that position. You want a good topic. You want to have done really good, high quality work. And then you want to get your writing up there. Right now in the journal, I have um, 30 manuscripts sitting, 30. I can only take 10 in a journal submission. That means I have the next three. If I accept all 30 articles sitting in front of me, that means I'm already up through October of 2024 done. And, and that's it. That's not going to happen. The 30 that are sitting there, I have the privilege in the scariness of saying some of these just aren't of high enough quality because the other, you know, the other 20 were better, uh, 10 are going to get chopped. 
So final tips, know your topic inside and out, perform a detailed lit review, study the layout of well-written articles. I can't stress this one enough. If you love a good article and you see a good read, a good author, follow their work, study how they write their articles, study how a good article is written and try to emulate it. Read the journal that you're submitting to. Know what has already been previously published in that journal and don't submit the same article. Know the journal audience, read the journal author guidelines, write to the level of an experienced clinician, seek critical feedback on your article before submission. I have uh, two surgeons that I respect uh, immensely. These are the best articles I've ever seen on writing. And this is an old one, 1999 Welch. He's just awesome. He came to the University of Michigan, gave a lecture on how to write. I saw that lecture. I about fell off my chair. Then I read his article. It's just a really clean, well-designed manual. This is a good article. And then Ibrahim and Dimmick, they took the same concepts of Welch and then added more to it. And it's free and available on this website. I encourage you to study those and follow those. So with that, I'll stop, share, and open it up for questions. Um, I know we're behind time. So we've already said that you would uh, send out your slides. If you're online listening and you want those slides, please email me, jessica.manchus at nghs.com, your email, and I'll share those with you once I get the final ones from Judy. Um, I was going to ask, what do you think about using writing applications to enhance your writing skills? Oh, I think that's fine. Any tool that you can get, and there's lots on the internet. There's kind of scripted versions of how to write it out. Um, there's a lot of software now coming out on helping you with your writing. All of that is good stuff. Use it. Use anything you can. Absolutely. And what are your thoughts on artificial intelligence and where it? <laughs> yeah, everybody's, you know, people have concerns right now. Um, I think it can help you improve your writing. And I would use it to do that. And don't be afraid. Uh, each journal has got something about artificial intelligence in their author guidelines. What I put in JTN is it simply, you just have to acknowledge it. Put a sentence on your title page under acknowledgments that, yeah, I used artificial intelligence to help me improve my writing and grammar structure of my sentences. It, it's not a big deal. Uh, I think you can really use it to help you figure out how to say something clearer and better. Um, it can help you improve your writing. So don't be afraid of it. But each journal is different. You do not ever, uh, you don't cite AI as an author ever. Somebody actually has already done that a couple of times and that's a mistake. But yeah, don't be afraid to use it to help you improve your writing. Thank you for that. And we did have a comment from one of the guests online, Melissa Rouse. She said, awesome job, very helpful. Um, we, we publish a lot through trauma. Of course, you know that you publish some of the work out of uh, our organization, but I mean, throughout all disciplines, I think this, this uh, topic is applicable to all. And I've got a, a CNS nursing scholar in here. So I know that she'll take that back to her team as well. Yes, I'm excited to print out the article and, and read it myself. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. All right, any other questions? Thank you so much, Judy. Let's just give her a round of applause. You guys are to be uh, commended for having a topic like this for Grand Rounds. I think it's awesome. Thank you. I wish more people did it. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Well, I will definitely be sending this out. You know, we're a really tight community in trauma in Georgia. And so you might just be, uh, you might be teaching more than- I'd be glad to. Here. 
Well, thank you, Judy. We appreciate it. And everybody have a, a wonderful day. Before you log off, let me share my screen so you can scan the QR code and get your CE credit. There we go. Um, so scan this QR code for the evaluation if you're in person. I have the evaluation here on a piece of paper. If you cannot scan it using the phone app, the camera app on your phone, then the link is right there, surveymonkey.com slash R slash Z-N-G-G-H-N-Y. And with that, we will give your time back. Thank you so much, Judy.